If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John has been probably the most important verse of Scripture in my entire adult life. I first remember reading it and then memorizing it around 1978. I was 19. I had just begun to take my faith seriously, and change was happening in my life very rapidly early on. My life priorities and perspective turned upside down in a single summer through a mission trip that I grudgingly went on. I went on it because they were going to an island. That's my motivation. And um, the Lord gripped my heart when I was there. Came back and everything in Wichita was changed. And the reality that I could mess up, fess up, and move on was, was super important for me. I, I would have stayed stuck longer in old sin patterns that were still being undone by the Holy Spirit if I had not taken God at his word on this. And the truth of this verse has shaped me, comforted me, challenged me every week, and I would say probably most days for 45 years. And there have been many ways I have not been as faithful as I should have been, but I can tell you I have been faithful to confess my sins because I believe that God is faithful to forgive them. 1 John 1.5, this is a message we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The link between this paragraph and John's introduction is the word message. Verse 3 from last week, we proclaim what we have seen and heard. And the message John says he proclaims here in verse 5 is not something that he thought up, but rather he heard it from God. And the content of this revealed proclamation is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is a comprehensive statement of the essence of who God is. Not that he is made up of photons. He's not a physical being at all. This is a metaphor to help us understand really important things about God and then what relationship with him looks like and requires. And long before there was knowledge such as it is, there's still plenty of mystery of the physics of light. Light was a common and intuitive way of describing some key ideas. Light is truth, darkness is ignorance or lies. Light is moral purity, darkness is evil. And you see these light-dark motifs throughout Scripture. Not light-dark as in colors, but as in the presence or absence of the ability to see, to comprehend, and then to live in God's truth. So John loved to use the symbolism of light. In his letter he used it, but he really used it in his gospel, the gospel of John. John 1 in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In John 8, Jesus spoke and said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 9, he said again, I'm the light of the world. Then he healed a man born blind. So he makes a claim of truth and morality superiority, divinity, and then he backs up that claim with divine power. John 12, Jesus said, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. So light and walking are tied together in Scripture. It makes sense. I mean, you need to see in order to walk securely. Jim was walking in the dark the other night, and he stubbed his toe, broke his toe. And so this big old strong body is brought down by a little toe. A lot of parables in that in itself, but the idea is that you have to see to walk securely, and the message that God is light has practical moral implications for us. We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. John 3, this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we're not just to know the truth, we're to do the truth, to live the truth. 
God is light, in him is no darkness, equals God is truth, God is goodness, to know him is to live in his truth and goodness. And with this foundational truth in place, John's going to counter three wrong truth claims by the false teachers of his time. Each one's introduced by if we claim, contradicted by then we lie, contrasted with but if we. Now the third's going to have a variation on this and we'll talk about why when we get there. So the three errors were a denial that sin impacts relationship with God, verses 6 and 7, a denial that we're sinful in our nature, and a denial that we actually sin at all. And the false teachers were dismissing the terrible reality of sin, and by doing that, they were steering people away from the gospel, the good news, because the good news is good news to people who understand the bad news of sin. It's commonly believed now, as it was then, that certain kinds of sinful behavior are trivial to God. They don't matter. They're of such relative unimportance to him, after all, he's running the cosmos, that he doesn't care about the small things and neither should we. So you hear things like, God has bigger things in his mind than what happens in my bedroom or on my phone or about some curse words I use or whether I got mad, drunk, or jealous. Don't sweat the small stuff. God doesn't. You have to wonder when listening to this, what exactly does matter to God? Alec Ryrie in his book, The Emotional History of Doubt, writes that one of the greatest signs of the eclipse of Christianity in our age is that the defining individual of morality is no longer Jesus Christ as a positive example, but Adolf Hitler as a negative example. So instead of be like Christ, which is a great example, it's don't be Hitler. That's a great relief, pretty low bar. I'm no Hitler, I'm good to go. So pretty much anything goes, as long as you have Hitler as your negative example, don't be him. Got it. This is a very different vision than the positive vision as Christ as the definition of morality. And John will say that in chapter 2. Whoever claims to live in him must walk, live as Jesus did. It's a high bar to aim for. So what Ryrie meant by his Hitler as a gauge for how we're doing is that if you only aim to not be Hitler, then you'll fall very short of a life of morality. You know, hey, at least I didn't murder anybody. So if you aim for Christ's likeness, it's a different kind of life goal. And to aim for Christ's likeness doesn't mean that we sweat the small stuff, but it means that we repent of it. Because what we do with the small, God knows we would do with it all. That's Luke 16. Small matters. Now remember what John just said to us. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The God who is too big to care about the small stuff is actually a too small God, not a too big God. God's not working out of some triage. He only has limited resources, so he's ranking sins against all the problems he has to solve in the world. He doesn't have limited resources. He isn't overwhelmed, so he doesn't have time or energy to deal with the small stuff. That's a too small God. God can, and he does, hold all things equally and easily in his great mind. Parents are limited. We have limited resources, and so we'll sometimes say, choose your battles, and that's wisdom when deciding which of the many possible responses to our children's actions we should take. Is this hunger? Are they tired, sad, or is this plain old rebellion? But when it means choose your battles, I'm going to let this sin go because I'm just too tired to fight, then at that point we're not parenting. And God is never too tired or overwhelmed to not deal with our sin. His holiness is his greatness. It's not a weakness. He understands that all sin is a breach and how we're designed. And sure, some sins have larger direct consequences than others, but all sin, if not dealt with, is going to lead to our own harm. 
And it's darkness. All sin is darkness. God is light. There is no darkness in him. And so the false teachers John is addressing were undermining the gospel itself. If we deny sin and its impact on our relationship with God, we're not going to be inclined to believe and receive the gospel cure. And no human religion takes both sin and grace seriously like the gospel does. All religions, aside from the gospel, are human religions. And when humans make up a religion, they either focus on the sin, judgment, or they tend to focus on grace, forgiveness. And the gospel maintains this balance of sin and grace, God's justice and faithfulness. So let's walk through this passage. We're going to look at the the three errors revealed and then refuted. False claim number one, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we claim to have a relationship with God but walk in ongoing sin, we're living a lie. We're living in unreality. We can't walk with God if we're walking away from God. We can't walk with God who's all light if we walk in the darkness. So John's addressing the belief, common then and common now, that relationship with God is not impacted by our sin, at least the sins that we choose to believe are not impacted. Robert Hansen is considered the worst spy in U.S. history. He worked for the FBI, and he spied for the Soviets from from 1979 to 2001. He died this past June in Colorado Supermax prison where he'd been for 22 years, isolated for 23 hours a day. His betrayal cost the lives of people, more people than we even know, and untold damage to our national security. And terribly, he was a very religious man. In fact, he was in your face with his religion. He went to church daily, he prayed, read scriptures, and he walked in deep, deep darkness. He embraced sin, not just in his national betrayal, but his marital betrayal. And this is not uncommon. Historically, mafia members and leaders were very religious. Go to church and then go kill somebody. Unthinkable evil. It's the idea that someone's faith and relationship with God are separate from their morality and personal behavior. This is a terrible lie with devastating consequences for the reputation of Christ. In virtually every church and every cooperating group of churches, also known as denominations, there have been knuckleheads who thought they could do whatever they wanted and still have a relationship with God and still do ministry in his name. Fortunately, most churches and most denomination associations are not made up of knuckleheads. But those few knuckleheads are a travesty of what grace is. To have a relationship with God, we must first go to the cross. There Jesus paid the penalty for my sins. I receive his mercy when I repent of my sin. And I trust his finished work for me. So he died for me at the cross. There I go. And I die to me to live in him. That's how we enter into relationship with God. To have ongoing fellowship with God, I have to keep going to the cross. I keep messing up. I keep fessing up. And I want to move on. So I go to the cross over and over again. Not to be born again, again, again. I have relationship with God. I go back for continued fellowship with God. Sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. Grace is the only remedy. So gospel truth number one, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we walk in the light, then and only then, we have fellowship with one another and we have ongoing purification from our sin. This is the provision of sanctification. Justification is that initial going to the cross and saying, save me. Forgive me. Sanctification is going back to the cross and saying, yes, you're boss, you're still boss, forgive me again. And notice that he says we have fellowship with one another. This is a bit unexpected. We would expect he would say fellowship with God. 
But in the last passage and throughout his letter, he ties fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, and the church all together. You can't say you love God, but you can't see if you don't love the people that you do see. So to walk in the light is to be cleansed from sin and to enjoy ongoing fellowship with God and with one another. False claim number two, the denial that sin exists in our nature. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the first claim was not to deny sin, but to deny that sin mattered in terms of our relationship with God. Here the claim is that we're not sinners at all. Sin here is in the singular. It refers to our inherited sin nature. The first claim at least seemed to admit the reality that we're capable of sin. It denies that it matters to God. Here the claim is we're not sinful at all. So if you walked up to somebody who made this error, this claim, and said, well, what about that right there? He goes, oh, that, that wasn't sin. Yeah, that was sin. Well, here's why I did it. You see, because if I'm not sinful, that whatever I do, by definition, is not sin. They're down that sin rabbit hole, like Isaiah wrote about, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This is the upside-down world of I'm not a sin. Well, what a sinner. Well, what about that? Well, it wasn't sin because I'm not a sinner. We sin because we're sinners. Sin's at our core. And we have to admit this reality if we hope to live in the grace of forgiveness. So gospel truth number two, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, plural. We do sin continually because we're sinners. And he's both faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. So first there's a sin debt that he forgives, then there's a sin stain that he removes, and both of those are important. Our sin is not held against us. It's not a barrier to relationship with God. He's forgiven. Our sin doesn't permanently stain us. We get to begin again over and over. Your mercies are new every morning. How can this be? Well, because he's faithful and just. He's faithful to forgive because he promised he would. He's just because his son paid our sin debt. He's faithful and just. Again, that's that balance you only find in the gospel. Forgiveness and cleansing are conditional upon confession. And confession is not a religious ritual. It's repentance. The, the great word metanoia, which means a change of mind. If you change your mind, you change your direction. So you turn away from sin, you turn back to God. We can't be forgiven and cleansed if we don't turn to God away from our sin. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them, turning away, will find mercy. False claim number three, the denial of sin shows up in our actions. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out a liar and his word is not in us. So you have the false claim that sin doesn't matter to God, the false claim that sin is not in our nature, now the false claim that I don't sin. Sure, sin, hypothetically speaking, would break my relationship with God. And in theory, I'm capable of sin, but the fact is, I just don't. I've, I've, I've progressed past that. And what makes this claim especially serious is that it's accusing God of lying. His word frequently declares that sin is universal. Isaiah famously wrote, All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if we don't sin, Christ's sacrifice was a waste. And he changes how he answers this heresy. He doesn't use the formula, if we say, then we lie, but if. And there's a good reason for the change. So let me read gospel truth number three. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the way he contrasts truth with lie changes here because he doesn't want to give the impression that he's taking sins lightly, which people would accuse him of. Sure, sure, mess up, fess up, move on, no big deal, easy peasy. No, sin is a big deal, and you can be forgiven every time. So he's counteracting the two extremes. One, we can do whatever we want, and then just run out, abracadabra, be forgiven. The other is we can't possibly get off this easy, not for this and not for this again. Somehow i got to pay. Somehow i got to help God deal with my sins. John says, here's why I'm writing you, so you won't sin. I'm not saying this is easy peasy, no big deal. I'm writing so you won't sin, but if you do, you have Christ as your advocate. And he's not referring to the hardhead, knucklehead who's foolish and just doesn't care. This is a person who's pursuing Christ, like you, and still sins, like us. I'm writing, John says, so you won't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. And Jesus says the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. This doesn't mean that everyone will be saved but that a universal pardon is offered to all who will embrace it. And propitiation is a complex but really important word in the New Testament. The word was used in ancient times to describe the appeasement of an angry deity by offerings. That's not what the word means for Christians. John took the word, he applied it in a different way. These pagan deities were like fickle, unpredictable They were vengeful. They were immature. When I think about these pagan deities, I think about an all-powerful three-year-old. It's a terrible thought. Just think about that for a minute. And you had to control them by bribes. Sure, more sugar? Yeah, here's more sugar. Don't, Don't hurt me. Don't do bad things to me. This bears no resemblance to God. So here's how John explains propitiation. We'll jump ahead for just a minute. Chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. So what John means is it's the appeasement of the wrath of God. So that's the part that is true. We do, we are vulnerable to the wrath of God. It's a real thing. But God has appeased his own wrath by his own love through his own gift of his own son. That's the great balance. God's faithfulness, justice. Touching just to think about. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because God is faithful and just, we can be forgiven, our sin debt removed, and cleansed, our sin stain removed. All that sounds very religious, very intellectual, propitiation. I mean, what kind of word is that anyway? So let me me talk about what it feels like at the heart level and the life level. I'll give personal testimony. Last week, I was impatient, moody, selfish, unkind again. Last week, I confessed those sins to God again. Last week, I was forgiven and cleansed again. Last week, I chose to believe God and take him at his word again. Here's what I didn't do last week. I didn't excuse my sin. This is me. This is just me. Christy, we've been married 40 years. This is as good as you're going to get. Just make peace with it. Live with it. It wasn't that bad. No one noticed. I didn't kill anybody. Not Hitler. Someone else does worse. I didn't hide from God in my sin. God isn't going to want to hear this again. I'll just sort of wait. Maybe he'll calm down. Maybe he didn't notice. (laughs) 
I didn't wallow in guilt over my sin. How can I presume to be a pastor, father, grandfather, leader? I should be further along more perfect by now. What happened was he forgave me. My sin debt and my sin stain are removed by Christ. Now this truth is of immense importance and power in my life. It does touch my head. I think about it, but it touches my heart every single week. And what it does is it keeps me moving, encouraged, hopeful, joyful. That's why it's mess up, fess up, and then what's the third part? Come on, you've heard it a million times, kids. Move on. Move on. God has given us his word so that we would not sin. And anyone says, this is just easy believism. You can just do whatever you want, and then you can confess and move on. You say that, I'm like, how can you possibly be a Christian and say that? This is not a cop-out. This sounds too good to be true. It is good, but it is true. Now it's just up to us to take God at his word. Mess up, fess up, move on. Come on, Rodney. We're going to worship. So what you can do is your reflection time, your confession time is going to be while the the worship team um, leads us in singing, especially this first song. And then the second song we're going to celebrate together. So get yourself into a posture of confession.